What is up, everybody? We are back. It's week eight of the college football season, and this is another edition of the College Football Gridiron Podcast. I'm Nick DeLuca. The other guy on my Zoom screen is Ryan Gregware. Ryan, a lot to get to recapping an eventful week seven, Alabama, a big victory over Georgia. UNC, a really disappointing loss against Florida State. Clemson scored 64 unanswered points against Georgia Tech and Auburn, a disappointing effort. The Big Ten returns in week eight with Ohio State, Nebraska, and Michigan-Minnesota, a big matchup with Oklahoma State and Iowa State as well. So a lot to get to, and I'm happy to be unpacking it with you, making your college football gridiron debut. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. You know, we have a great week to recap. You know, college football is really starting to get a swing of things. Big, uh, Big Ten's coming back. So, yeah, you know, it's a good week. I'm excited to be here, Nick. For sure. And it's fun for me just because we get the opportunity to break down some college football, again, with the knowledge that there are more pressing issues that are going on in our society right now with the COVID-19 pandemic and some of the cancellations and some of the logistical issues that all of this stuff has presented. But it's good to sit down. We finally feel like we're back in the swing of things now with the Big Ten coming back. Now we've got all the major players involved with our eyes towards a college football playoff. We've got Ohio State, who we figure to be in the conversation. Michigan is a team we expect to be good. Penn State, Minnesota. So no longer do we have to look at the standings and say this team is in the top 25, this team in the top 10. And we know, you and I both know, they don't belong there. So I'm really excited for that. The talk of college football this weekend, of course, is the Georgia-Alabama game. They're Alabama number two in the country coming in at home, Georgia number three. And this one, I guess I'm the only one who had faith in Nick Saban and Alabama coming in. But it wasn't an easy ride for Alabama during the week with Saban testing positive for COVID-19. And it was just interesting for me before we unpack what we saw in that game just to see how Alabama reacted and dealt with all of the issues that were off the field when they're playing probably their biggest game of the season in week four of their season. And to see the way that they handled that, I thought was really impressive. Yeah, you know, this it's rare that we see Alabama play a game this big in the middle of this, like this early in the season. And with Saban testing positive, you know, we were worried about this game getting canceled. I know I was talking about on another show, like what if there was an outbreak, you know, worst case scenario. And we kind of got the best case scenario for the, you know, the hand we were dealt. It looked like Saban had a false positive and on game day, he was able to coach, you know, they announced he be able to coach. And I think that kind of Alabama, you know, they responded well. And I think that kind of set the tone for what we saw in the game. Yeah. The one thing that made me a little uncomfortable was just the optics of him taking off his mask a couple of times. And I know that he had tested negative and he had been cleared to coach. And I'm not a hundred percent sure that that wasn't a little bit premature and rushed back because you just want to exercise an abundance of caution. But if they felt comfortable with letting him coach, that's fine. My issue would be just keep your mask on. Let's be safe here. We know that you were just diagnosed and tested positive. Let's make sure that everyone's safe. And you just, felt that the officials were in sometimes an uncomfortable position because it's like, I'm, I'm within six feet of you, dude, you you just tested positive for COVID get away from me. I mean, I know I have a job to do, but you gotta, you gotta lay off. So that was the one thing that I saw from Saban, but we'll, we'll 
get over that for a second and then get to sort of the play on the field because this was one of, if not the best games in college football that we're going to see this year. I mean, I was really excited to park myself in front of my television and take in everything that went along with watching two of the best teams in the SEC go at it. And as expected, that Alabama offense was really good. Mac Jones goes uh, 24 of 32, 417, four touchdowns and an interception. This game starts with back-to-back possessions that end in interceptions, but then both teams really get into what they want to do. Najee Harris was able to establish the ground game very well with Alabama in total, 43 carries, 147 yards. Harris totes the rock 31 times for 152 and a touchdown. And Jalen Waddell with that receiving core to go with Devontae Smith, those two really just lit it up. The, the Alabama passing attack, Devontae Smith, 11 catches for 167 yards, two touchdowns. Jalen Waddell was... I don't want to say quiet, but was quiet at times. And his quiet day went for six receptions, 161, and a touchdown that included a 90-yard bomb. So I thought that Georgia bottled him up for most of that game, but then he rips off the 90-yard catch, and you're like, geez, there's just so many weapons on Alabama's team. But I think that the biggest thing in this game, and I talked about it beforehand, was how was the game script and the game flow going to happen? Because if Georgia was able to get out to a lead in that first half and really run their offense the way they want to run it, that's running the football. And they did an effective job of that. 30 carries for 145 yards against a subpar going into that game, Alabama defense, although I thought they showed up big time against Georgia. But they weren't able to run the ball because they got behind and they weren't able to dictate the game flow. So now you're talking about Stetson Bennett having to throw the ball 40 times and for Alabama's passing game or for Georgia's passing game, rather, it wasn't pretty 18 of 40, 269, two touchdowns and three interceptions and some costly ones at that, particularly in the second half when Alabama was able to outscore Georgia 14 to nothing in that third quarter became go time for Georgia in the fourth. And they couldn't do anything against an Alabama defense that I thought was pretty impressive. Yeah, so going into this game, you know, the Georgia game plan was, you know, Setson Bennett, he's a walk-on, he's a former fourth stringer, nicknamed the mailman, you know, just deliver the mail, let the defense play. They'd only given up 12 points a game going in. And as you said, the game plan got blown up. They weren't able to run the ball in the second half, two for seven on third down with two picks in the second half, because when you're getting in these third and longs, you know, Stetson Bennett had to throw the ball. And as you said, three interceptions, it wasn't pretty. Um, the mailman nickname, Nick, I think we got to retire it for now, at least, you know, it's tough to have a nickname like that and then play as poorly as he did in the second half. I don't know. Maybe, maybe you can retire it or maybe it just illustrates exactly what he is. But if I were Georgia, I would consider whether you want to call him the mailman or not putting him on the bench, because when you were playing an Alabama defense that looked terrible against Ole Miss, I mean, they were awful. Mm-hmm. you expect to be able to move the football. And I don't know whether that's going to JT Daniels, a guy who I thought showed some promise when he was at USC and transferring over, but you're not going to win games when you got to play teams, the caliber of Alabama, when your quarterback's going 18 to 40 with three picks and a QBR of 58 and a half, it's just not going to happen. And I think that that was the most apparent thing that held Georgia back because you knew that Alabama was going to score. Their offense is just too good. And Mac Jones 
has engineered that offense fantastically because they can move the football, they can run, they can throw, they can do anything. I don't think maybe you'd sit there and say maybe you'd hope that Georgia could have done a little bit of a better job defensively, but are you holding them under 30? I don't think so. That's just not the way Alabama's offense works. They're just too good. And Georgia just couldn't keep that game competitive in the second half because they don't have the offense to roll with Alabama and their defense. Although I thought they did a decent job of slowing down that Alabama attack, their offense didn't give them a chance in that game. Yeah. I mean, as you said, the Bama offense was outstanding. You know, now they're first in the nation in yards per play. So this isn't some boring team, you know, classic Nick Saban team, run the rock five yards a carry, let the defense carry you. No, this is an explosive team. As you said, Devontae Smith and Jalen Waddle are both superstars. And Mac Jones, you have to give him a lot of credit, Nick, because he is playing up to the standard. He's now played himself into the Heisman, you know, not necessarily the front running, but he's in the back end of the conversation, which many didn't see going into the year. And uh, back to um, Georgia for a second. You couldn't help but watching this game, you know, with the what if. What if they kept Justin Fields? You know, I know they had to make the difficult decision from over him a few years ago. And, you know, with Fields about to start the year for – Ohio State and looking the way he did last year, you have to wonder what this team would look like if they had, you know, quarterback as one of the strengths rather than one of the weaknesses. I agree with you. And again, maybe I have a romanticized view because there's the old saying that goes, the most popular guy on the team when the quarterback isn't playing well as the backup quarterback. But I would really strongly consider bringing in JT Daniels to see what he could do with this offense because one of the limitations of Stetson Bennett is, is the game manager mentality, but it's also the weak arm. And that was, I think, on display. He, he doesn't really have an arm to make some of the throws, and maybe JT Daniels have, may have some weaknesses elsewhere, but arm strength isn't one of them for him, so he may be able to add another dynamic to their offense. Look, I know that Kirby Smart is putting the guy out there that he expects to give them the best chance to win. There's no way that they feel that – JT Daniels is better right now than Stetson Bennett. But when you look at that depth chart, I would just sit there and consider it because it was really difficult. And they'll, they'll win. They can stay with Stetson Bennett, and they'll win a lot of games because that defense is really good. And Georgia has a lot of weapons too. It's, it's not like they don't. And they're, let's not forget they're playing the number two team in the country in Alabama and Nick Saban, who has had a ton of success against his former assistants. It's just to me – it's one of those things that kind of reminds me, actually, of if, if Georgia wants to get to the national title conversation, the switch that Clemson made from Kelly Bryant to Trevor Lawrence. It's just that extra gear where, yes, Trevor Lawrence is going to go out and be the number one pick this year. He might not, might not have been that way or, or that good as a freshman, but it's just that spark. It's just that different skill set. Then that can help propel you to some more success and potentially make you more of a contender in the context of that whole college football playoff picture as opposed to just simply saying, okay, well, we think we can win with a game manager like Kelly Bryan or Stetson Bennett. So really impressed with what Alabama did, especially defensively and holding down that Georgia offense. Georgia, a lot of questions to answer, and Alabama answering the bell in one of the biggest games early on of 2020. Let's move on to the biggest upset of the weekend, and that is UNC, fifth ranked under Mac Brown, falls 31 28 to Florida State. UNC fell behind early. They were down 31 to 7 at halftime. 
and then a furious comeback, 21 unanswered points in that second half, and we're driving to potentially tie that game with a field goal or win it. Weren't able to get it done with a couple of drops on that last drive, and UNC, that's an ugly loss to a Florida State team that's 2-3 and three right now and, quite frankly, didn't look very good throughout the majority of this season. Yeah, that's a really tough loss for UNC. You know, they came into the game like number five in the nation, which has been their highest ranking since 1997. So Mac Brown has kind of changed the narrative there. He's changed the culture. He has a competitive football team. And this is one of the biggest games I've ever played. Uh, it was a total letdown in the start. You know, you can't go down 24 nothing. You just can't do that. And then, as you said, 31-7 at halftime. And while they did, you know, they crawl back at the end, you have to give Howell credit for sticking in there. It wasn't enough in the end. They played really sloppy. You know, two blocked punts. A pick six, missed field goals. They didn't really deserve to win this game. The fact that they made it that close is kind of miraculous. But, yeah, you know, there's a, UNC was really disappointing. And, you know, they came to the game 13-point favorites. They lost outright. And, you know, you have to be disappointed if you're Mac Brown. And that's the most concerning part for me on the side of UNC, concerning and not concerning, in that I think that this is a wake-up call for them and they'll continue to play better the rest of the season because it's hard to replicate – sort of how sloppy they were. But this is just characteristic of a team that in the area of details wasn't ready to play. When you're talking about getting punts blocked and some of the special teams miscues and the drops that they had, it just, it just wasn't there. And I didn't think that their offense was, especially as they picked it up in the second half, was bad at all. I mean, Sam Howell, 20-36 for 374, three touchdowns and an interception. I know his QBR looks bad, but – they picked it up in the second half. They were able to run it for 184 and, and their receivers, they were able to spread the ball around. It's just one of those things where when you, when you turn the football over and make those, I don't want to say mental mistakes because there are some physical mistakes that go into having punts blocked and turning the football over. It's just one of those things where the attention to detail is not where it needs to be. And then you look at the other side and I'm just perusing through the stats right now, starting quarterback for Florida State. He goes 8-19 for 191, a touchdown and an interception, and his team wins. They rush for 241, which is a recipe for winning, and that run defense for North Carolina needs to get better. But he completes 8-19, and they win in this day and age in college football. They were hanging on for dear life in the second half. And look, no one's making the argument that Florida State is any good, but I think at the end of the day, that's what makes this so much more frustrating for North Carolina where this was a program that you felt like was gaining serious traction and serious momentum. And yet that's just, it, it, it all went away on, on a night where you're playing Florida state. And, and that's just not, that's not what you're looking for. Yeah. You know, this was, I was really disappointed in UNC, as you said, because their schedule, they have a ton of winnable games coming up, right? They at home versus NC state then they go to Virginia, then they go to Duke, then Wake Forest. And then that's Notre Dame. And we were looking at that game, you know, being the season, being what would determine maybe a playoff spot if the ACC were to send another team in. And to lose this game, a really ugly loss. You cannot lose this FSU team right now. And as you said, not only did FSU only complete eight passes and win, but they put up 31 points against what going into the week was a top 10 defense. So yeah, you know, really disappointing from UNC. You have to figure out a way to win the easy games on your schedule because it's not going to get easier. You know, now you have to play Notre Dame. And basically, if you lose that game, the season is completely over. Yeah, Notre Dame going to be a big game for them upcoming and a good one. We'll have to pay attention to that as it comes forward. Other notes from around college football, Clemson again winning 73-7 to in a game that was tied at seven in the first quarter 
uh, Trevor Lawrence helping that Clemson offense to 64 unanswered points. He, he did throw a pick in that game, so yeah. there, was, there was that. But he looked pretty good in that Clemson offense, was rolling against some pretty inferior competition in the ACC. Safe to say they stu- still ruled that conference. Auburn also a disappointing loss at the hands of South Carolina, 30-22. to Bo Nix looking terrible again, and that Auburn offense really trying to piece things together. But let's get to week eight. And I think the most notable thing from this week in college football is the return of Big Ten, right? That's what we're looking for and trying to get a more accurate picture of what's going on in college football and trying to see where some of these teams stack up. I'm going to start with Nebraska and Ohio State. And I know that you've been paying attention, a lot of attention, Ryan, to Ohio State. How do you feel about them going forward into this season in their outlook? Yeah, you know, we've been seeing, you know, the last few weeks when we've been trying to, uh, you know, Know, look at the AP polls, interpret something. Ohio State, they've been moving up. Last week, they went from six to five without even a snap. And so this Ohio State, this is their conference to lose. Um, they've, they've owned the Big Ten recently. There's no reason they shouldn't this year. They clearly have the most talented team. They have a ton of starters back from last year with Justin Fields on their center. And people forget, he was just as good, if not better, than Trevor Lawrence in the regular season last year. He was a runner-up for the Heisman. And, you know, they lose J.K. Dobbins to the Ravens in the draft. But with Ryan Day in his second year, if they can replicate his production at running back, they are going to be in there with the Clemsons and Alabamas by the end of the day and be a real com- uh, competitor for this title. I think it's hard for people to categorize when certain teams start playing and others are not. But we forget how good Ohio State is and how much of a factor they're going to be when it t- comes time for the college football playoff. Everyone talks about Clemson, and it's well-deserved when you beat a team by 64 and it's well-deserved when you're Alabama and you're taking care of Georgia. And I think a lot of people think Georgia's a very good team too. But Ohio State, I, I do believe, is going to be in there in the college football playoff when it's all said and done. And it's in large part to that offense. And Justin Fields, with the way that he finished up last year to put himself in that Heisman discussion, was, was really excellent. And I think that a, a second year for Ryan Day will also – make a big difference as they continue. And it's, it's a continuity thing. I think they just really have a well-run and well-built program. And I think that's going to serve them well as things get crazy in the Big Ten where you're talking about, hey, are we going to play this year? Are we not? When are we going to play? Who's playing for us? Who's tested positive and negative for COVID? There are so many things that surround this season in college football. And I think you have to be most confident when you look at the Big Ten that Ohio State is going to cross those T's and dot those I's in the conference. They're playing Nebraska this week. Clearly, I'm taking Ohio State. I assume you're there as well, Ryan. Absolutely. Uh, no-brainer. They will stomp Nebraska. I agree. Scott Frost in that Nebraska program in some rough waters right now and trying to figure out a new direction. They got better at the end of last year, but nobody's expecting them to come through with a a win over Ohio State on the road at the shoe. It's just not happening. So let's go to Iowa State and Oklahoma State. I think this is probably the best matchup of the weekend. Two ranked teams, Iowa State at 3-1, 3-0 in the conference. Oklahoma State 3-0, 2-0 in the conference. Oklahoma State has, I don't want to say surprised some people, but I don't know that we had them up there at number six beginning this season, but they have played really well behind Chuba Hubbard, who has been a very big force in their running game. And and this, this team out of the big 12 that is wide open with Shane Illingworth as their freshman quarterback, 
slinging the rock pretty well as well, you, you have to figure could also factor into our discussions when we're talking about the playoff. And I'm really excited to see what Oklahoma State can do against a pretty good Iowa State team. Yeah, I am completely all the way in on Oklahoma State. And if you look at the Big 12, someone's going to win the conference. And they're looking right now clear and cut above the rest. You know, Texas, this was supposed to be a big year for Texas. They've lost two games already. Oklahoma is in a kind of transition year. And so this is the year, you know, Mike Gundy, a lot of, there's been a lot of criticism. He can't win the big game. This is the year he has to do it. They have to beat Texas. They have to beat Oklahoma. They have to handle Ohio State this week. They cannot look ahead of this game. And if they do that, and if they're able to win the Big 12, you have to start looking at a, putting them maybe at the four spot. You know, we've seen recently in, re, in years, Oklahoma has gotten that four spot for winning out and winning the Big 12. They have got stomped when the playoffs come around. But, you know, just getting there would be a huge accomplishment for that program. Yeah, Oklahoma State versus Iowa State, it's a huge game for them. They cannot afford to lose this game if they want to keep their eyes on, you know, making the playoffs. So I take it you're taking Oklahoma State in this game? Yep, absolutely. Okay, I will too. This is, I think, going to be a closer matchup than maybe even the three-and-a-half spread. I think it's about right. It's going to be a close game. But when you look at the weapons that Oklahoma State has offensively, I like what Iowa State does. I think they're really well coached. Matt Campbell does a great job with that program. But I don't know that they have the firepower on offense. Brock Purdy has, I think, done a good job. But it's it's – sort of similar to the Stetson Bennett situation where you're not confident he's going to be able to make enough plays to keep up with that Oklahoma State offense. So I'll give them the win at home. ESPN's matchup predictor agrees with me just south of 74% on that. One last matchup that we want to get to as the Big Ten returns, it's Michigan and Minnesota, which is probably the best matchup out of the Big Ten slate this weekend. Game being played at at TCF Bank Stadium in Minnesota. It's Jim Harbaugh trying to maybe get over the hump, finally get this Michigan program back to where they want to go in the playoff conversation. They've got some question marks at quarterback. Minnesota, quiet as it's kept, I think has some interesting returners and may be able to make some noise in this Big Ten this year. Yeah, this is an awesome game. Minnesota was sneaky really good last year, 11-2, including a huge win against at the time, was number four Penn State. They teetered off a little bit at the end. But in this one, you know, Michigan has dominated Minnesota in the past. They've won eight of ten. Joe Milton is going to be the quarterback for Michigan. It's his first career start. He's appeared in eight games. So it's a lot of, there's a lot of question marks there. I'm going to take Michigan based on the track record, based on hardball. But I think this game will be a really close one. See, this is a tough game to pick because you're looking at it and there are a ton of questions. And that usually happens in college football when you're talking about the opening of a season. You don't get preseason, and you don't have established veterans, and it's really hard to, to predict how things are going to go. Minnesota is getting three and a half points in this game, and I would pick them to certainly cover the spread. I'm also going to pick them to win this game. I like them at home. I like the continuity ruling the day. Tanner Morgan was one of the better quarterbacks in all of college football last year, as quiet as it was kept. I love what P.J. Fleck is doing with their program. I'm going to take Minnesota over Michigan. Ryan, it's been a pleasure breaking down some of this college football with you. That should just about do it for our college football gridiron podcast here in week eight. Ryan Gregware doing some work here in his debut on the podcast. Thomas Aiello doing a great job producing. Always listen to us and make sure to check us out here at the College Football Gridiron Podcast. We'll be back recapping week eight and looking forward to week nine. 
we'll see you next week.